All right, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. You know what time it is. Time to go up the down staircase, in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's go. right taking care of a little business here on a saturday morning on the life 2.0 podcast first and foremost as always thanks to those of you who subscribe to this uh particular outing on a weekly basis i do these every saturday i try to work in some middle of the road stuff too but my audio production stuff and and uh schedule is over the top busy and that's good for me Uh, so i try to make sure every saturday i get this in and this is such a diversion from what i'm normally doing during the week and if you're Curious, by the way, um, I do two shows in Washington, D.C. that air on Sunday. One is the Dow of Music, which is way out of my comfort zone, uh, kind of being a, a bit of a disc jockey, a digital disc jockey, of course, and having fun with some music that I do that uh, in D.C. It also airs online at the same time. It goes into an archive. And then Jennifer Weigel and I tag team it uh, at 2 o'clock Eastern time. The Dow of Music is on at uh, 10 Central, 11 Eastern. And we were on at 2 Eastern and noon, 1 Central. Got to keep these moving parts. Or is it 1 or 2? I don't know. It's there. www.newworldradionetwork.com and we're there. Uh, so we do those shows and that takes a little bit of our, our effort. And then I'm working on audiobook projects for people and some print stuff for people. And so by the time Saturday morning comes around, I got to tell you, uh, I just feel like sitting down and talking about things that I'm not normally talking about during the week. Even though Jennifer and I uh, wander into some of this stuff, this is more of my bully pulpit platform, I guess you could say. and probably shouldn't say platform and pulpit in the same sentence because I don't want to pop my peas, but I got an air diffuser in front of my microphone, so it should be okay. I've been thinking a lot about uh, the people that were teachers in my life over my lifetime, and they've come in all shapes, forms, sizes, vocations, and... uh, it really started to get on me a little bit more when I got a uh, friend of mine reached out and asked about my books, you know, and quite frankly, I haven't thought about the books that I've written in a very long time. I don't spend a lot of time after I've written them. They go out into the world, they do what they do, and I'm on to the next thing. So I'm very uh, proud of the effort that was put forth by myself and the people that helped build this out. When I did the uh, the first two books, Living an Uncommon Life, Essential Lessons from 21 Extraordinary People, and then Every Moment Matters, that came out in 2010. Uh, Uncommon Life came out in 07. And then the last book I just did, Phenomenon, Sacred Moments, Messages, Memories, and Other Shit I Can't Explain, that came out in 2020, so two years ago. Uh, and so for me, these are extensions of what I think I need to put out in the world while I'm here. I, I'm basically trying to... Um, pay back for the rent uh, that I am due to the universe for taking up space on the planet. Let's put it that way. I just think that, listen, I I did this talk in 2018 uh, up in uh, Canada, in Ontario for a TED talk, and it was called The Human Math. And anybody that knows me in grammar school and high school, math was not a strong suit. and It really isn't that much today. Thank God for computers and all this other technology because, you know, after long division, I'm toast. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I figured out that 
the average life expectancy in the United States right now is about 77 and a half, 78 years. And that's like 28,000 plus days to be alive. And if you get more than that, it's a, you're winning the lottery. And even if you get less than that, you got to wake up every morning, at least in my observation experience and definitely my opinion, realizing that if you woke up again today, you've won the lottery again. What are you going to do with the day you've been given? That's how I look at life. And sometimes it gets a bit much because by the end of the week, I'm you know ready to sit on the couch and watch Three Stooges reruns for four hours, which is not a bad thing. It's basically therapy. You know, that, and that, let me just segue real quick. When I was a kid growing up, we watched the Three Stooges. Now, by the time I was watching them in the 1960s, they'd already come and gone, basically. But there was this whole thing about parents thinking that if you watch the Three Stooges and Moe's poking Curly in the eyes, which he never really did, or Larry got slapped and his hair was pulled out, or my favorite Shemp had a wrench on his nose, and, you know, that we would somehow go replicate that. Now, I, I never once slapped my sister, you know, like at the, the Three Stooges or get the poke in the eye thing. Maybe I pulled a wrench out once. Not really sure. But my point being is just because you see something doesn't mean you imitate it. But that was back then. We would see it maybe once a week, you know, after school for 15 minutes. It was not the inundation of this onslaught of of uh, all sort of material that, that really affects, I think, people uh, the way they see the world. And it, it was just a different time. So anyway, I got this request about my books and I, as I said, I don't read them. You know, I've written them already, so I don't reference them. I don't really go back to them. I know that they're there. They're out for consumption. They're on Amazon. They're on lulu.com. Phenomenon is in audio. I am working on audio versions of the first two books. When I get around to it, we'll get that done. Did not feel like putting them in print again. I own the rights to the first two books and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a dicey business publishing. And I think the best way to do it for me is to just follow this audio format. I'm, I'm working, but I've been working on uh, a couple of novels, and I don't know that I'm a long-form writer. So all of this stuff's kind of been floating around in my head after I got this request about my book. So I signed a couple books and sent them to my friend, and, and off they went. And I started thinking about the people in that first book, Essential Lessons from 21 Extraordinary People Living an Uncommon Life. And... Some of them are gone. Some are still here. But in particular, Wayne Dyer, the vaunted and, uh, you know, highly successful self-improvement author, uh, was a good friend of mine. And he's been gone, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years at this point. And the thing about writing a book, and I'll use Wayne as an example and myself to a lesser degree, is that when you're gone, the books live on. The audio lives on. I mean, there there is something good about that. Uh, and I've never really been able to grasp how we can have a world still in so much chaos for the most part when all the answers are already there. They've been written already. There's books in the world about how to do everything better and just pick a subject and there's a book for it and an expert for it or a teaching about it or something like that. So while we have all this vast information at our fingertips, literally doesn't mean we assimilate it in a way that has made a concrete constructive difference over the big picture, in my opinion. If we did, we wouldn't be, you know, worried about Russia with nuclear arms again. We went through this 40 years ago. Most of this stuff just seems to recycle itself. And so I think until you evolve, you keep revolving. So you're either evolving in life or revolving. And we do a lot of revolving. And there's, a, uh, I guess there's a lot of reasons for that. Most people will spend no time, almost zero time, improving themselves. They don't feel they need to. They're scared of it. I don't. There's many reasons for that. And one of the elements I've always worked into all my shows somewhere was that concept that, you know, if you wake up today and you were given this day, 
is what can you do to pay rent for that? I mean, it's, it's, we, the odds of being born in one in 400 trillion and you showed up, not a lot to complain about unless you look for it. So I have my days where I'm thinking, I can't believe this shit's happening again. And then I revert to things that I was taught by some of these amazing people in the book and other people that aren't even in the book. And the one thing Wayne Dyer said many years ago that really stuck with me, he said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So for me, I apply that in real time now and in the past, uh, events that I've, I've dealt with, people, those type of things. And as time goes on and the, the view I have of things changes, then of course the meaning of those events change and they may not seem what they were back in the day. And I think that that's not like a, a weird, catchy, woo-woo mantra. It's just the truth. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And it doesn't mean that you've changed. It just means the way you view things have changed. So you can have somebody who, you know, has been a certain way their whole life and they will have an intervention of sorts, whether it's a, you know, a, a difficulty in their life or whatever it may be. And it gives them more empathy for people who have been in that certain situation. Um, listen, I... I remember when I was working at Harpo for five, four or five years, uh, and it, I thought that was the pinnacle of my career, and, and in many ways it was. But when that ended, so did everything around it. And within a year, I, I went from the executive producer of you know Dr. Oz, Gene Chatsky, Bob Green, Nate Berkus, and some other shows, do my own show on the channel, getting paid ridiculous money, uh, earned every bit of it, but I thought, this is, this is good. You know, it's good to have this kind of resource. Uh, within a year, I was standing in line at the unemployment office in Michigan. You know how difficult that was for me? I mean, it was just, I, I felt like failure city. And when people recognized me and knew who I was, that made it even worse. And it's kind of like, you know, you, you have that happen. And the empathy I had for people, because I'd always worked my whole life, always found a way to make ends meet. Sometimes they were really tight, but you always make ends meet and you push it together. So to have to go and say, look, there's no matter what I do, things are kind of gone to shit and, and the doors are closing in all these different ways and I need this money, you know, to, and I was accomplished at that point, right? I mean, by all means and professionally and, and like that, I was an accomplished commodity. You know, I'd been working at Harpo. I produced all these shows. I got my stuff underneath me and I was a commodity. And I never once thought that I would be out of work for as long as I was. I never thought that, which is part of the deal. And so when I went to the uh, unemployment office after you know going online and setting everything up and walking in there and having to sit down and answer questions on a computer in front of somebody to prove I'm doing it, and so I could get paid whatever it was, 400 bucks or whatever the deal was, uh, it was it was difficult, and I started questioning everything, and then at some point I started to change the way that I saw all of this, and that was of great value to me, so. While I had never had to be on unemployment my whole life, I realized, or at least I gave myself the opportunity to see it differently so I understood that process more. It's like reading about things in the paper. The unemployment rate is 7.4. The unemployment rate is 4, you know, whatever it is. And it's just a, a passing blip. But when you're actually in line waiting for that check and having to fill stuff out, that unemployment stuff is important. So I had never given it much thought. Why would it? Because it wasn't something I needed to experience. And when I did experience it, I saw it different. It changed for me. And I don't know that I ever judged people for being on unemployment. I just never had the experience myself. So I could not speak to it. And of course now, I get it. 
I totally get it. And there's a thousand things like that in my life. You know, I never thought I'd experience. Then you go through it. And, and even writing a book on a very positive note, I never once in my whole life growing up as a kid thought, I'm going to write books. Uh, I do remember thinking that having, you know, a, your name on the spine of a book was pretty important and that it lived on. You know, my mom and dad had a huge library in our houses, floor to ceiling, nine, 10 foot long, uh, built into the wall bookcase with all kind of stuff, everything you can imagine in there. And I remember reading as a kid, you know, the, the stuff I could reach, the child craft books and things and the compilation uh, pieces that I read. And then of course, as you go up the, stair- the, the bookcase, there's, you know, bigger names and things like that. And I just, my dad was a voracious reader, as was my mom. And they would take books out all the time. And, and you know, they would never tell me to read anything. They might say, you might want to read this. And I would. And, you know, and Ray Bradbury was a huge influence on me. And I think the thing that I've kind of acclimated for him is he wrote some great short stories. And all of the books that I write are in that type of form. I don't like to go on and on. I may go on and on in these podcasts, but I don't like doing it in print because life is short. Uh, I like to write as I like to read. And um, those books have done very well. And I think part of the reason is, is because I, you know, you keep it short and to the point and this is what I experienced. This is what I've learned. Here's, you know, let's, let's get to this. And I, I caution the authors that I work with, the print authors, you know, that they come to me with demands of word count when they're putting a book together, that it should be X amount of pages and there should be X amount of words because somewhere there's this invisible standard that every book should have 85,000 words in it minimum. And I don't buy that at all. There's a lot of books that are far less, they're half that long and they're bestsellers. And I think that's the key. It's not about word count. It's about making words count. And so I try to find the middle ground with clients and say, look, this is great. Now, you know, I'm sure we'll get to a certain comfortable point for you. But counting every word doesn't mean shit, really, if the words don't count. And if you, when you're reading them, they're just filler. So it's, it's a bit of a daunting task when I work with people to get there. Uh, but eventually, we, we seem to do that. And so back to Wayne Dyer in this, this Living on Common Life book, I have not, like I said, picked it up in years. I, don't, I just sent the last copies I have out. I have to get a few more in. And I started going through the list of the people that are in this book and how they affected my life. And as I said, some of them, like Wayne, have passed away. Uh, but I, I just think about the indelible mark that is made by, by humans that are here with good intent. And how important that is, because there's a lot of humans that are here without good intent. And I I vowed as I was getting ready to do this podcast that I would stay away from a certain pseudo talk radio host who's made millions of dollars talking about Sandy Hook, who's now on trial. And he's still belligerent and still wondering why everybody's picking on him and still wondering why he's the victim. You know, and, and here's this guy making money talking about something that was a devastating part of our history, wondering why people are mad at him. I mean, you have to assert, have to have a certain disconnect with that. But there's a certain segment of society that feeds off there, that lower level energy stuff, kind of like a placostomus in an aquarium. Their only job is to clean up all the shit on the bottom. And, you know, there's that bottom feeder mentality and it comes to nothing. It comes, it gets you in court is what it does. So as much as I would like to have an audience of millions of people. The truth is whether one of you are listening or a thousand are listening or a hundred thousand listening, I have to say the same thing and be congruent with that and understand why I'm doing this. And I'm not doing it for the money. You know, I'm not selling weird products uh, here and, uh, you know, end of the world type materials and and go to your bunker and here's your food you're going to eat. I'm not peddling fear. I'm peddling faith. And 
I'm good with that. Even though it's cost me commercially a few times, I'm good with peddling faith because it's the thing I need most as we go along on this journey. One of the other things that uh, Wayne was real big on is figuring out why you do what you do. Most people don't. It's just by rote. Oh, we've always done it this way. And he used to tell this story of this uh, young woman who married into a very affluent family. And she decided that at one point she was going to um, uh, cook the Easter dinner. She was going to take care of the Easter ham. And so uh, she spent, you know, all this time, energy, and effort getting ready to have this big family over. And she cooked this beautiful ham. And when they uncovered it from the pan, the family was aghast that she had not cut the ends off of the ham. I mean, that they always cut the ends off the ham. And why? how could she not know this? And oh my God, it was, it was a huge uproar. And it became a thing until somebody at the table asked, well, why do we cut the ends off the ham? I mean, where did that start? And nobody at the table could remember except one of the older relatives at the end who said, well, my grandmother used to cut the ends off the ham because the pot she had was too small to fit it in. And so we just, every Easter, cut the ends off the ham. And it became a thing. And, but it didn't mean anything. But to the people who believed it as gospel, it was everything. Silly little thing like that. But that kind of mentality and that kind of, I don't know why we do this, but we're just going to keep doing it is, in my opinion, experience and observation. Part of the reason we're in trouble most of the time. We keep recycling without really knowing what we're doing. And I think it's imperative uh, on an on a individual basis that we figure that out. What are you doing here? You know, I ask myself this all the time. Uh, many years ago, I spoke at a, an event uh, at the Windstar Choices for the Future Symposium called The Human Family in 1994. It was before I had ever written a book or ever been on radio or did a TED Talk or 99.9% of the stuff I do now. And all I did was ask the audience three questions. That was really the, my whole talk. It was called The Ripple Effect, How One Thing Leads to Another. And um, it was three questions. The questions were the, simply this. Where have you been? Why are you here? And where are you going? Now, where you've been, that's kind of up for debate. Only you would know that. And how you see that, as I mentioned earlier, kind of determines so much of your path. Why are you here can be taken in a lot of different uh, contexts. I like to look at it as from the from the up and the down, meaning from the up, I look up and I think, wow, I got another chance to be here today. What am I going to do with this? And from the top down, I look at I look down and think, wow, I get another chance to be here. What am I going to do with this? And so I feel like I, I may be a little bit over the top with the fact that uh, I, I'm just adamant that I'm not supposed to waste time. It's just I've been around too many people that thought they had more time than they had, and it comes to nothing. So then there's that third one, where are you headed? And for most people, they don't know. And quite frankly, I don't know either. But I think that the concept that there's another day ahead or another week ahead is good to have in mind, but it also plays against the day you have today. I, I, you know, next week really doesn't exist and last week doesn't exist. All we really have is this one long ongoing now. Those are only places that are on calendars and in pictures. What was and what is and what is and what will be, you know, it's all kind of juxtaposition. So it's a little deep for a Saturday morning, but that's kind of the week that I've had and spending time looking at this book that I, ha I wrote so long ago. I just, like I said, it, it's almost interesting to me that I need to read at times the very things I wrote. And I also tell the authors that I work with the same thing. You're writing this book for yourself. 
If anybody else gets any value out of it, fantastic. But this is really about getting your life out on print and, um, and saying I was here. There's validation that you showed up. Um, I actually bought a copy of the book, A Matter of Grace, that I helped publish for a young lady who's now 93 named Trudy Groning. It was about her experiences in, in Munich, Germany, growing up as a, a young lady in Hitler's rule in World War II and how she came through all that. And it was a very difficult experience, obviously. She was not Jewish. She was German, but lived in a Jewish community and saw what happened, affected her deeply. She would become a war bride, come to the States, um, and, and have an incredible life overcoming MS and, and so many different things. Uh, but the experience was so difficult for her that she wrote in the third person. And when I started to connect with her and work on this book, she sent me 44 pages like handwritten pages. She did not know how to use email back in 2017. And um, she sent me these 44 pages of, of what she had written. And I looked at the date on the pages and it was 1967 and 68 that she wrote this and hadn't touched it since. I was like seven or eight years old then, you know? I mean, so it was a bit overwhelming for me. But my point in, in sharing this is, I happen to be talking with another gentleman that I'm working on a book project with, and I mentioned this book. He said, I'd really love to read that. And just that I'd really love to read that sentence, you know, he doesn't know that we took a year and a half to get that done, that I would call her at home and we'd go back and forth on the phone because she couldn't really email. And what it took to pull that out and get this together and how proud she was when that was finished and that her life is at least between the covers of a book. And depending how you see your life, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to all of this. And while not everybody's going to put it out there and write it, I get that. I think it's important to validate and realize that, once again, you're one out of 400 trillion that showed up here, that your life has value and meaning, and that you don't have to be a bottom feeder. I mean, sometimes you might bounce down there, but you don't need to stay there. It's like the guy who was skydiving and his parachute half opened and he ended up going into a landfill. And at least it cushioned the blow. And it took him a little while to crawl out. And when he crawled out, the, the cop was there. And he says, you know what? You could have died in the landfill. He goes, you know, I could have died in the landfill if I stayed in there. But I crawled out and that's what saved me. So his point was being is you can't let this garbage get to you in a way that you get stuck there and you fester. It's about crawling out of that stuff. And that's all about when you change the way you look at things, the things that you look at change. Finally, uh, just before I cut loose here, um, one other thing Wayne Dyer talked about that had become paramount for me, and I, I, I knew about it, but I never really was able to put it in the words that he did, and it's what gives me a great measure of peace in the world today. You know, and you say, well, how could that be, John? You ever read the headlines? I try not to, because it's the same shit that was going on five years ago, 10 years ago, 15, 20, 25. The, the names and the faces and the characters change, but the themes are all the same. So I don't want to engage in that unless I have to, and I don't have to for the most part. But he talked about karma, and he said, the way people treat you is their karma, and the way you respond is yours. And when he said that, and he said it many times, and you know, we had conversations over the years on radio and off the air, it, all of a sudden, I don't have to be judge, jury, and executioner for everything I see in the world that's wrong. There's an energetic force in this world that moves a lot of things that I can't explain and I don't want to, nor should I. But I can tell you that when I watch someone like this guy on trial who for 
for months and years got away with saying that Sandy Hook was not true. It never happened. These kids are still alive somewhere. And he found an audience that'll feed on that shit. And that people from that audience went to the homes of these Sandy Hook parents banging on the door demanding to see their dead son or daughter because so-and-so said it wasn't real. And he made millions of dollars off that. He's already put his karma in place to show up in court now. And all of a sudden, he's the victim. It's effing amazing to me, but that's how karma works. What goes around comes around. It's like Newton's third law, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So you got to watch what you're putting out into the world. At least that's the way I see it on this Saturday morning. Once again, thanks to the sponsors who make all this possible for the rest of you. Thanks for listening. Be well, safe travels. Until next time, adios.